This episode of Consumer VC is brought to you by Ferret. Let's say you're looking to invest in a business or you're considering investment from someone else. How do you actually know they're legit? Sometimes deals move so fast and it's tough to get that confidence fast. Luckily, there's Ferret, the first relationship intelligence tool for savvy investors and CEOs who need to know who they can trust. Running a quick search on Ferret can get you information like past lawsuits, bankruptcy, fraud allegations, but also can be used to verify past successes that they claim. A new relationship is always exciting, but that also means trust is important from the start. To skip the line and access Ferret's exclusive beta, where you can be part of the first thousand and have influence on the product, head over to ferret.ai and use the promo code CONSUMERVC. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Andrea Hippo, partner at Lair Hippo. Lair Hippo is a New York-based early-stage venture capital fund that has invested in some of the most compelling consumer brands like Allbirds, Chubbies, Cotopaxi, and Glossier. On this episode, we discuss how to invest in pet products, measuring environmental and sustainability efforts from brands, and what makes Disneynator brands venture-backable in the first place. Without further ado, here's Andrea. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, really happy to be here. It's a sunny day in New York. Really can't complain. That's great. That's really great to hear. Um, yeah, I know. We're really excited to have you on. Um, I love sort of the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to venture capital? Yeah, I wish I had some super glamorous story about it. Um, but I actually started my career in a really stuffy corporate sales job um, where I wore a pantsuit to work every day and sold uh, market data to financial firms. So I was walking trading floors and, you know, talking to hedge fund managers and I was selling a kind of tier two uh, product during the recession. So it was a lot of banging my head across the wall. Um, And I actually, I didn't hate it uh, by any means, um, but I kind of knew it wasn't what I wanted to do forever. Um, And so I decided to, to go to business school and kind of, you know, during that process, I got the opportunity to join a family office and I was the second employee. So I was everything from the SVP's personal assistant to the associate, um, you know, making coffees and writing investment memos. And it was the first time I had gotten really to interface with entrepreneurs and founders and realized that there was this whole other world out there where people loved their jobs, um, where they wore jeans or whatever they wanted to work, um, and really where kind of passion met um, work in a way that I hadn't, uh, I had never experienced before. And so I did end up going to business school, but really 
wanted to concentrate my time in working in, in that ecosystem because I just found that the energy was, you know, exhilarating and working on something that you really believe in, I think makes, makes such a difference. No, that's awesome. That's really cool. I agree. I think it's very, very exciting and fun and certainly interesting, but would love to learn since you also came from and uh, really kind of dipped your toes um, in the family office setting. What's some of the differences working at a family office versus like a venture capital fund? You know, I think there was a, a couple things going on. A, it was a family office and B, it was their first ever fund. I think in some ways they actually skewed kind of more corporate in their investment making decision in, you know, where they would do a formal kind of meeting every week. I think it was at like 7 a.m. or sometime you would never think of in, that, in the startup world. Um, and they really wanted to do a lot of diligence on every single company for like a pretty nominal check size. Um, and I think um, you know, at the time we, we didn't get into a lot of deals because, you know, we were kind of slow in that regard, but there was like a ton of value that they could bring to the table through the, the affiliated business. And so that was always, we could almost get a meeting with, with anyone we wanted because they, the idea of being able to work with the brands that this family owned was uh, really intriguing to founders. And then at the same time, there's some benefits where like they didn't care as much about ownership. So they could get a smaller check into a round um, where maybe as a, as a professional investor, or, you know, where we have LPs and, you know, a real kind of financial mandate, um, you know, we would, we would have to turn down. So there's definitely pros and cons. Um, but overall, it was, it was fairly similar. Um, I would say probably Lear Hippo is a little bit more fast paced um, in terms of number of deals, but there are some, you know, kind of more traditional VCs that don't do very many deals either. So, you know, it, I think it, you kind of take, you got to figure out where where you're interested and what you like to do and then find the right fit in terms of funds. Totally. I had on Will McClellan, who also came from Family Office. He came from Grace Beauty Capital. And then he started um, Elizabeth Street Ventures. And he said, the one thing about family offices is every family office is different. That's the one thing that you could always know about family office. But it's interesting when your experience knowing that uh, it might be slower um, but at the same time, the value is definitely seen. It's much more strategic and you can be more flexible with the amount of like check sizes you can actually have and write. So that's that, that's also really, really cool. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, I mean, as a founder, I think there's a lot of value going to family offices. You just need to know, target the right ones for what you're building. So I totally understand your how you ended up on the venture side. What was your attraction or experience in consumer brands? Yeah. So, I mean, I think as an investor, you know, you kind of start with what you know, and not that I, you know, had started a consumer brand myself, but definitely as a consumer of products and brands. And I think you can just kind of innately understand the value prop of those businesses. And I had also worked at BarkBox or Bark during business school. Um, and so I had had kind of an inside look into um, a fast growing consumer brand and really thought that was just an amazing experience, an amazing company. Um, and so I was able to kind of apply some of my learnings from working there to looking at companies. But I think overall, like when, when you can, when you are the consumer or you know the consumer, consumer. Um, I think it just could, it's really an easy way to, to resonate with an investment. I guess what is helpful is knowing when you actually might also be the customer and understanding like what, um, uh, what types of brands you might be looking at that would be interesting in, in a particular space. 
Um, and that can really impact or really help on the actual investment front when you're actually analyzing some of these brands. Yeah, exactly. And there's probably, I mean, obviously there's bias in that approach and a lot of the kind of, you know, evidence that we will gather on a, on a product is pretty anecdotal in terms of like, Hey, everyone at the office, try it or send it to, you know, five of your friends and see if they like it or have you heard of it before. So, you know, there isn't in kind of innate bias in that, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's a really familiar way to get to know a company. It's one of those that's, that's quite interesting because actually episode two of the podcast was with Hayden Williams, who originally he was working at BBG and he passed on Daily Harvest. Oh, I passed on Daily Harvest too. Okay. Well, the reason why he passed on Daily Harvest is because he was like the, the target demo for, for Daily Harvest, but he couldn't imagine purchasing smoothies like online, the actual like channel for smoothies. He's like, I would just never never do that. And he passed. And then later on, he's now, I think, the investment um, head of investments at, at Brand Project. And they didn't pass. So he was like, it's crazy because, you know, he actually originally passed on it. And now, you know, with his fund, he's actually helping Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is one of those that I use as like a, an example of a company I wish I hadn't passed on. They're like, they always come right into my mind where I'm like, oh man, I wish, I wish we hadn't passed on that one. But it was it was kind of true because at the time, I mean, now it seems so like, duh, but at the time, yeah, at the time, like nobody was purchasing smoothies in that manner or really purchasing like food, you know, frozen food products. And you think about the cold supply chain and everything that goes into it. So, but it really was like a category creator, I would say, um, which is really what you're looking for in venture. So like, like I, like I said about bias, like Sometimes you can be negatively biased towards something too, given your own lifestyle or, you know, the way that you do things that makes you pass on things that you just can't like conceptualize outside of your kind of tiny box. Totally. And so you kind of have this mix and, and this is what I think is is tough. When you might be the target consumer, you might be so maybe overanalyze it in a lot of ways. Like, you know what? I wouldn't buy that. So I'm actually not going to, like in Hayden's case, right? Like I wouldn't buy that. I don't know if you were also a smoothie drinker as well, but like, you know, maybe you as well were like, hey, that is just not something, not something that I would buy online. Yeah. Or like, would a, would this be a mass market appeal? You know, like those are, that's the other thing you have to think about. And sometimes you just, you know, it's very similar, um, not to just tell you all the companies we did not invest in, but um, (laughs) Peloton is, I think, a very similar story to that, where the idea that someone would spend thousands of dollars on a bike when they could just go to their local cycling studio was like, there's just like, no way. Yeah, okay, maybe you'll get hardcore cyclists to do that. But like, everyone's just going to go to their local cycling place. Why would they want to spend that much money on a bike? And like, that was just, so like short-sighted and, and stupid, honestly, not, not to realize that that was the, the future of fitness. And then we did Mirror, you know, which, which was an amazing company that sold to Lululemon. And so that was kind of like our second shot on goal in the at-home fitness space. Um, but yeah, a lot of time, I mean, Uber, same thing. It's like, you know, the taxi commissions will like never let this happen. Um, you know, they'll never like let competition come for the taxi medallions. Like they're going to hit so many roadblocks of regulation. Like there's just no way this will ever happen. And then of course, you know, those big ideas are the ones as a venture capitalist that we really should be betting on, even if they don't seem a hundred percent viable. And one 
But one thing I will say that is like, I think a commonality between all those companies is the founder. And I think the reason that I regret not investing in Daily Harvest, besides the fact that it has turned out to be an amazing company, is that the founder was just amazing, like so you know, a class A, like stellar. And I just think that when we look back at deals, we regret not doing, it always has to do with the founder and we should just do those deals. Um, even if maybe the idea sounds absurd or, you know, okay, maybe not if it's something so, so niche that would never be venture scale. But like, if you find an amazing founder, like I, and you have like a really great gut feeling about that person and they have founder market fit like that, you should just do that deal. How do you build conviction within a founder and maybe analyze that founder market fit? Yeah. So, so much of that is art versus science in terms of founders and founder market fit. I can probably tell in the first five minutes of a meeting, my kind of gut read on a founder. And I would say that typically does not change. You know, sometimes you can build more conviction about someone over time, but you very, I find you very rarely get less conviction about someone over time. And I think, um, you know, kind of as a piece of advice to founders is just realizing how important that like very beginning of an interaction is. Um, and, you know, trying to, cause there's, I, there's definitely ways that you can, you know, put your best foot forward in, in that regard, but Obviously, relevant experience is huge. You know, looking at at someone's LinkedIn. Um, okay, have they worked in this industry before? Is this something they're they're truly passionate about? But even if, like, let's say you didn't, you know, work in X Y Z industry, because not everyone can, you know, do that. Um, you know, just really like, is this something you've been thinking about for a long time? Is it a personal pain point? Is it a pain point that you've seen? repeatedly, maybe through your spouse or a family, a family member or a friend. And then like, how much time have you spent thinking about it prior to starting the company? Um, and, and I think that goes a long way around like thoughtfulness and conviction about the idea and not just like, oh, I think I can make money doing this. Like, no, like I can really like architect and change a whole sector is really what, what we're looking for. Yeah, I mean, those are all really great points. How do you measure relevant experience, particularly in consumer? Because we've had on folks that even are are generalists that say in consumer experience in the particular category is kind of like less important than it would be in like enterprise, of course, less than like deep tech and what have you. And usually it's the ones who kind of come from the outside and just have a particular insight that actually are the ones that kind of transforms a particular vertical. So I'm curious to know what does relevant experience actually mean exactly? Yeah, maybe in consumer, I don't know if it's less applicable, but yes, you definitely see people getting into consumer from different different ways. And I think that goes back to our kind of earlier conversation about like personal stories um, and interaction with consumer brands. Like a lot of times you see someone that was like, I just couldn't find XYZ product, or I was really unhappy with this product or this consumer experience. And when I looked into it, I realized that like, there really isn't anyone doing this. Um, or there's these really high barriers or uh, barriers of entry, but I can get around them somehow. I do think that people take for granted how difficult it can be to get a product to market. And it might seem like, oh, like, you know, I don't think there's any really great craft box out there. Like, I'm just going to make that. Like, I, I think that that 
there is, it does take a little bit more than that, but that's definitely, you know, you can use contractors for that as long as you kind of have the vision or you can bring on a co-founder or, or make hires later on. But I do think it is a little bit more complex than just kind of realizing there's a gap in the consumer market and, and going after it. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I feel like relevant experience is always kind of a tricky one in some ways because it's really trying to understand. But I mean, to your point, is this a problem that the founder can ran over over and over and over again and finally realize that, okay, the only solution is really to start a business more out of like necessity than wanting, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, first of all, relative experience doesn't, you know, it can be, um, it could be marketing. You know, that's a great relevant experience to have in consumer, even if you were marketing a totally different product, which is kind of understanding how digital marketing works. That's a great relevant experience. Finance can actually be a great relevant experience. Like you really understand unit economics and margins and how to scale a business financially. Like that's a that's huge relative experience. Um, so it doesn't doesn't mean that if you're going to start a, a femtech business that you have to have worked at Playtex. Like, you know, like it doesn't mean it's not, you don't have to take it so on its face. Like a lot of relevant experiences are very valuable to consumer businesses. Maybe even if you don't come directly from that, from that world. And I would say like also all the best consumer brands are either there was like kind of an aha moment. So like Warby Parker, for example, I would kind of frame as an aha moment when they realized that all of the frames were coming off the same conveyor belt and just having different price tags put on them, depending on which brand was being put on the side, you know, like that's like an aha moment. Like, wait, like something's broken here. Why is a pair of Gucci glasses six X more expensive just because it says Gucci when they're all being manufactured at the same, at the same place. So either aha moment, or like true industry expertise or some sort of, so for example, our portfolio company, Kiernan, the founder comes from a private equity background, which you would never think, okay, private equity, women's bra and underwear company, like that, that seems like no relevant experience. Well, he had spent a lot of time looking at Casabella, which is a, which is a lingerie, high-end lingerie company. And he learned a lot about the lingerie business through, through that experience um, and realized that actually, while Casabella was a great private equity investment, actually the bigger opportunity would be to start something brand new. So, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways to, to get to it, but that being said, it's, it, they, there's always like an aha moment or some sort of deep industry research or experience versus just like, Oh, I'm going to start a new shaving cream company. Those are really, really good points. Just thinking about it too. What I particularly liked is you don't necessarily need experience in the actual vertical right? That you're actually trying to build in. It can be broader marketing experience or finance experience or what have you. And so, or supply chain experience, um, all very, very critical. How do you also think about like for physical products, like does there need to be some type of product innovation for you to get excited about? Or can the branding, the appeal to a particular consumer that's underserved, can that be enough for you to, to get you excited about a particular product? Yeah. So, you know, I would say definitely 10 years ago, maybe as recent as five years ago, like just going direct to consumer was kind of enough. I mean, there was, you know, like there, that was the innovation. The innovation was that you like cut out the middleman 
and you were able to sell directly to a consumer and build this relationship with your brand with directly with the consumer. I mean, that was huge. Like, I don't think we give it enough credit, like how huge that was. And those first brands like Warby that came out of that, what they, what they, they did, they opened up the door for every category to be able to, for, to be able to do that. So like for a long time, you could just kind of, you know, cherry pick the direct to consumer brand and all these different verticals that was doing that. And like, that was the innovation and, and it was great. Well, you know, that, that has become more saturated as, as we all know, you know, now it's, it's really easy to go direct to consumer. It's even, it's even easy for conglomerates to go direct to consumer. So, you know, it, it's not necessarily even need to be a hot tech startup to sell direct consumer. Really, anyone can do it now. And then there was a lot of arbitrage um, around digital marketing. Uh, You know, really, Facebook and these platforms were just giving away free advertising when they were were building their ad platforms. And that was a great way to, like, build a consumer brand super, super quickly and cost efficiently. Well, as we all know, like, that has also become way more competitive. Um, And while digital marketing will always be a channel for these brands, it's not the main driver of building your business. The same goes for influencer marketing and, you know, other marketing channels that were very nascent at the time. I would say two things. We're definitely looking for more tech now and product differentiation, but that doesn't mean it has to be like AI or, you know, ML or, you know, Bitcoin or like, you know, it doesn't have to be so crazy tech. Like I think sometimes direct-to-consumer brands when they're pitching VCs, overplay the tech part and try to make it seem more tech than it is like you should just you should be what you are and definitely highlight your tech components and that's always great but you know you don't have to add in you know ai because it's a buzzword that means you're actually a tech company so that and then there are some segments still that you know are ripe for direct consumer disruption like we did a investment in a company called spark grills which is trying to disrupt like Weber and Green Egg and these like old school uh, grill companies that all distribute through wholesale. So there are like these kind of areas that are left untouched. But in general, yes, we're looking for more tech, more differentiation in the product than just selling direct to consumer. Well, I love the fact that you mentioned Spark Grills because as we're recording this, Ben's episode just dropped from the podcast. Oh, great. Okay, good. Great, great chatting with yeah. him. Amazing what he's building, kind of combining the best of both worlds of charcoal and gas in terms of what he's built with, with Spark Grill. So that's really, really cool. With all this being said, what are some particular consumer trends or areas of focus that you're excited about right now? Yeah, I mean, we're spending a lot of time on Gen Z. So, you know, Gen Z is going to have tremendous kind of buying power. They behave from a consumer um, spending perspective much differently than millennials. So they actually spend less than millennials. They saw their parents get into student loan debt and credit card debt. And they really are not actually... They are consumers, but they're not, it's very, it's very different. Like they, and and on top of that, they really care about the environment um, and sustainability. So they don't necessarily want to just go, you know, spend a bunch of money on at Zara. Um, They want to 
really understand the brand that they're buying from, you know, their environmental impact, what their mission is, um, you know, what they're doing for either, you know, a, from a social a social perspective or an environmental perspective. So we're spending a lot of time there. We've done a lot of investments um, in that space in the, in the last 18 months and continuing to spend a lot of time there. So that's one. Um, you know, I think I, I mentioned environment and sustainability. I think plant-based is, is huge. Um, I mean, obviously we're investors in all birds and, and and they are kind of at the forefront of, of using sustainable products, but um, I think there's a lot more a lot more to be done there in, in consumer, uh, both on the brand and kind of on the core component and, and tech side. And we're also spending a lot of time in the creator economy. I think that kind of goes hand in hand with Gen Z a lot, a little bit, because a lot of the creators are are part of Gen Z. But this just like a whole new workforce um, and way that you know those creators work and spend their time and their day. And there's a lot of tools and products. I think that. Um, are missing in, in the stack for them. No, I mean, those are all really interesting trends within Gen Z um, that they spend less, they're more environmentally friendly and sustainable. So I reckon they will like overall maybe purchase less clothes and really be a lot more thoughtful around around maybe like the actual pieces that they, that they spend on. Um, how do you measure? It seems like almost every brand um, that I see is saying that they're environmentally friendly, saying that they're sustainable. and But how do you actually measure that as an investor if they're truly sustainable? And what does that kind of mean to you? Yeah, so we are um, sustainability investors. You know, obviously, um, it, it used to be there was such a distinction between you know, kind of eco-social driven funds where maybe the um, – you know, the, the kind of capital side of it was less and, you know, the return, you didn't have to have the same, same number amount of returns and, and all that. But really, I think that those are starting to blend now um, as people realize that, you know, a, a sustainable company can, can drive outsized returns, just like, a, you know, a company that doesn't have that as part of their mission. Um, and especially in consumer, as it's becoming really important to, to the, the bot, the end buyer, um, you know, that's something that, that is, is really core. Um, we don't really do anything specific in terms of diligencing or, or looking at it, but just really understanding, I think this also goes back to, to founders and kind of the, the founder's core mission. And, you know, a, a lot of times you just kind of suss that out with conversations with the founders and see like, if, is it something that they even bring up or is it something that they're just kind of slapping on the website to say that they do? And, and is it really an innovative program, you know, where you know, similar to going direct to consumer was so innovative, like buy one, give one was really innovative for a while. Well, now it's like, it's, fairly easy for, for brands to do that or, or say that they do that. So there's no like exact like checklist of like, oh, okay, do you meet these five criteria? It's just more of like an overall sense you get from the founder about how they want to build the company. I know another one of the areas that you focus on is the pet space, obviously with your time with Bark and as well as I know this is an area, but when you take a big market like the pet space, for example, how do you dissect in terms of what particular subcategories are doing really well? What, what categories maybe you feel like are saturated, not paying attention to? Yeah. So we've been investing in pets for 10 years. So Bark um, was in one of our early funds, um, obviously just, just IPO through a SPAC, uh, which was really, really exciting. So this has been an area that we've been interested in for a long time. Um, the Dodo um, was incubated out of Lear Hippo, was started by Kenny's daughter Izzy and is now part of group nine. Um, so on the content side, um, you know, kind of realized early on that animals were going to be huge in content, really, you know, the virality 
factor is big with animal content. And, and then we've moved on now to invest in Ollie, which is uh, a fresh pet food, small door, which is a chain of veterinary um, clinics, and then Phi, um, which is a, a tracker uh, for dogs. It's a, a hardware device for a dog collar. So, you know, I think that a lot of times we kind of approach the animal space very similar to, to the human space, you know, where, where are there gaps in the market? Where do we think things are going? I mean, obviously Bark was kind of the first brand to really talk to, you know, pet parents, which I think now is, is a term that people are very comfortable with, but at the time uh, it was brand new. The idea that people were treating their, their dogs um, specifically in that case as members of the family and speaking to the human in that way. And it evolved from there. I think, you know, I think that, uh, oh, we're also in investors in, in One Health, which does cancer treatments for, for dogs. I think that the health and wellness space for pets is still very much untapped. Uh, Phi is coming out with some really interesting new functionality around sleep tracking, but all the kind of like health and wellness tracking and things that we do as humans, you know, when you think about dogs um, and, and pets as part of the family, um, it makes sense that those, that there'll be a lot of, you know, consumer adoption uh, for, for pets as well and health and wellness. So it seems like content you're very bullish on uh, for pets, trackers for dogs, pet food. Is pet food, do you consider now, if you were investing in like a pet food company, is that kind of a saturated market or or not so much? It, it's a great market. Our company, Ollie, is doing phenomenally well. Um, but yeah, it might be a little bit saturated at this point. You know, I think there are, there are a few, you know, probably a dozen brands out there, some direct to consumer, some through retail. I think there's maybe an interesting, you know, there's some for non-dogs, like there's obviously a cat food brand, but you know, there's lots of, um, we're also investors in a company called Coro, which is in the equestrian space. So for horses and eventually moving into to all kind of farm products. So, um, out, you know, I think outside of just dogs, um, but yeah, I would say maybe pet food, I would say pet toys are probably a little bit saturated pet treats, hardware devices, for pets, you know, like kind of the pet treat dispensers and the training devices, kind of smart crates, that might be a little bit saturated as well. I mean, even though when, when we did our investment in Fi, like if you went on Amazon, um, well, first of all, there was Whistle in the market, which uh, Fi is bigger than now, but it was a huge competitor at the time. If you went on Amazon or you could do it today and you, and you type dog tracker into Amazon, you're going to get like hundreds of results. So it's not like there's no other products on the market. But there was no brand we felt like that was talking to pet parents. So, for example, the way that Bark kind of would talk to pet parents and their content is very cute and cuddly and funny. Five went the approach of like your dog as an athlete and, you know, your, your dog should be treated as an athlete. Like you run with your dog, you take them for walks. Like why aren't we tracking their steps um, and their fitness, um, like the, the way that you do for humans, um, with the added kind of benefit of being able to track if they get lost um, or, or leave your property. What's one thing you would change about venture capital? Um, well, there's a lot of things I would change. I wish it was more diverse. Um, I wish there were more women in you know partner leadership roles, which I think is is changing quickly. But um, you know, obviously, a long, long way to go. I wish VCs wouldn't take themselves so seriously. You know, I think that on Twitter. And I mean, there's, there's so many amazing people in venture. I think sometimes the like kind of talking heads on Twitter can give it a bad, a bad rap, but you know, I wouldn't take themselves so seriously and kind of take their word as like Oracle. Cause like, you know, we don't, we don't know any better than, than anyone else. And I wish that like, you know, at the end of the day, like 
you VCs are only as good as the founders that they back. And I think that founders should get a hundred times the credit that a VC gets. Uh, and sometimes I think it's like inverse, which I don't love. But so yeah, I mean, maybe that's a lot of things to change about VC. But I, I do think that, you know, those things are changing. Um, and, you know, as a, a younger generation are starting companies and becoming investors and companies are IPOing and you're getting new angel investors in the ecosystem. Um, you know, I think the makeup of, of VCs is, is really changing. Totally 100% agree about uh, that the diversity um, issue it really cannot be understated enough, like overstated enough um, how big of an issue it is in venture capital. Because as we've seen, like you tend to invest in people who look like you. And so if you don't have diverse investors, you're probably then not going to invest in diverse founders. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Well, I don't know if it inspired me, but Bad Blood was a was wild. And I think that just shows you like everything that can kind of go wrong with venture capital. <laughs> and then personally, I, there's a young Irish author named Sally Rooney and I just love everything that she writes. Um, and I think that she's amazing. That's awesome. I'm really excited to add bad blood to it. And I'll have to look up uh, Sally Rooney and, and check out her work. Yeah. She said normal people was one of her books. That's a lot of them already made into TV shows now. Probably people might know the TV shows better than the books, but I highly recommend the books and Bad Blood is just like, wow. Yeah, I would definitely add that one to your list. <laughs> My final question to you is, what's the best piece of advice that you've received? The best piece of advice I ever received was actually from Kenny Lear, uh, who's, who's a managing partner at Lear Hippo. And this is before I worked at Lear Hippo. I had just graduated college and I was about to start my very boring uh, corporate sales job that I told you about. And Kenny was uh, really, him and my dad were friends for a long time and he was nice enough to be helping me with my job search. And he called me and I was out shopping for said pantsuits. And he asked me what I was doing. And I said, oh, I'm, I have to buy a whole new wardrobe for work. You know, I have to wear a suit every day. And he said to me, never take a job where you have to buy new clothes. It's just showing that like, it is just not going to be a fit and work where you feel comfortable um, and where you're going to like, that's where you're going to do the best. And at the time I was like, well, they're offering me a job. So like I'm taking it. <laughs> that was like my one criteria. It was, um, but I think in retrospect and like seeing the way that my career kind of evolved and the fact that like seeing people wear jeans to work was such an aha moment for me about this whole other world that existed. That that has really resonated with me. I love that. I love that. We we haven't heard that piece of advice yet. Yeah. So very original. Very original. This is great. Well, all, all thanks to Kenny. Yeah. All thanks to Kenny. That's great. That's great. <laughs> Well, Andrea, this has been amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Mike. This was really fun. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Andrea. You can follow her on Twitter at Andrea Hippo. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.